0: Welcome to Stewardship Spotlight, a podcast featuring conversations with the world's leading experts on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship. This podcast is produced by the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project at the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. I'm Dr. Marnie Peterson, your host. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Natalie Vestine, Research Associate and Communication Specialist for the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy Antimicrobial Stewardship Project. We will be discussing her many roles in the project, including understanding the importance of antimicrobial stewardship in COVID-19 patients. Over the past six months, Natalie has created a COVID-19 and antimicrobial stewardship Or AMS resource page, where she has collated hundreds of guidelines, tools, perspectives, publications, government, and public health policy for our SIDRAP ASP online community. Natalie, thank you for
1: joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Marnie. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Before we begin our conversation, I would like to provide our listeners a little bit of your background and accomplishments as they may not be familiar with all of the many things you've accomplished in your career. Natalie has received her master's of public health degree from the University of Minnesota where she received the most outstanding master's project award for her work on homicide risk factors in the Twin Cities. She has worked as a consultant for national and local public health organizations. And she received the Carol Young Anderson Collaborative Research Grant to study tuberculosis transmission in refugee populations. At SIDRAP, she has worked as a researcher on the Public Health Practices Project, which gathered and disseminated pandemic preparedness practices from the U.S. territorial and local agencies. And she currently works as a researcher and communication specialist on the SIDRAP Antimicrobial Stewardship Project. She is also an interdisciplinary artist, and this summer she participated in the Pandemic Artist Lab, hosted by Cassini House and Tulane University Special Collections. Natalie, as I mentioned in your introduction, you have a Master of Public Health degree. Can you tell us what led you to choose a career in public health?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So when people ask that question, I'm always um, a little curious about how far back they'd like me to go, because I think when it comes to choosing a career in public health or even falling into a career in public health, um, those journeys are pretty diverse and everybody has their own reason for becoming interested or even introduced to the field. Um, so I, I always start when I'm four because I like to tell a, a good long story. Um, but when I was four, I, um, had a really severe homophilus influenza infection that, um, became meningitis and it was a really formative experience for me. And I remember pretty much everything about it. And um, it was one of those things, I think when something happens very early on in someone's life like that, people start to tell stories about it and they start to tell stories about what it means for that person and their family. And so very early on, I was introduced to this idea that an infectious disease could change everything and that an infectious disease could become extremely formative to a person's life. I lost a lot of ability to move, to walk, uh, to navigate. Um, and I had to relearn all of that. So it was something that kind of kept moving its way through my life. And it was really, you know, aside from, um, or in lieu of rather a a birth story or, um, a childhood event story, it became this, like this big thing that really defined, um, who I was in the world. And, um, then skipping ahead, like I always carried that with me and always thought about who I was in the context of who I became after that experience, when my brain kind of had to rebuild itself a little bit and um, in college i uh, I majored in history, and I was introduced to all of these. Um, different aspects of history, but particularly archival history. And I've always been a researcher at heart, and I loved that aspect of taking a data source and uh, that no one was really familiar with or that people hadn't really accessed or interpreted, and then looking at it to see what it meant for a problem that maybe people were experiencing now. And I got really interested in medical history and in the history of disease transmission to populations. And um, probably like a lot of people, I didn't realize that public health was a thing um, or that epidemiology was a thing. But I knew that I was really interested in the stories that we tell about disease and how disease kind of takes on meanings apart from Uh, the pathogen or the science as it moves through communities and how those are always attached to the science and scientific understanding. Um, But they also tend to take on a life of their own as people make meaning out of these experiences. And um, I started looking at tuberculosis transmission because it's one of those diseases that has a tremendous uh, social, economic, uh, personal impact um, in terms of how it moves through communities and how it's experienced by individuals in different places. And I was particularly interested in tuberculosis, the stories we tell about tuberculosis. Um, So in the Minneapolis and St. Paul area, there are a number of refugees who have resettled here from Somalia. And at the time, tuberculosis was, an issue, it was being studied and traced by the Minnesota Department of Health, of course. Um, But there uh, there was sort of a limited understanding of how the chain of transmission worked, especially when it came to people who had experienced these long periods of migration. And I was really interested in that because I think there's this narrative of infectious disease as being brought somewhere. And we kind of forget when we're talking about things like that, that there's a truth to that, but also factors at the point of resettlement um, can make such a huge difference to how those infectious diseases spread um, and how they affect the lives of the people who have them. And I was just really fascinated by that, by the fact that you could tell a number of different stories about how a disease moves through a community and also how there were these hidden stories in the data that perhaps people hadn't looked at or people had looked at and interpreted a certain way, but maybe someone else could bring another understanding to it. And so long story short, I didn't want to be a historian at that point. And so (laughs) I went to public health grad school after an advisor introduced me to the fact that that was a thing. And um, got really interested in uh, in grad school, in looking more at these issues. Um, I took as many infectious diseases classes as I could because they were so linked to that idea of using an archive and using data to tell a story about something that affected people's lives. Um, after grad school, I worked for about a year for a uh, cardiology consulting firm and found that cardiology was not my area because it scared me to death. And I, um, I saw a job posting for the Public Health Practices Project at SidRap in about 2006 and um, was really intrigued in becoming, um, in learning more about infectious diseases and also in being involved in a project from the ground up. And um, obviously I have stayed at SitterUp for quite some time. Um, I think, you know, it's been in the news a lot lately um, because of the expertise that people at SitterUp have, but it's such an extraordinary organization. It really is like a big caring family. And Well, it's not so big, actually. I shouldn't say that. It's quite small. Um, but um, I'm just so proud to work with people who have so much integrity and approach these issues of infectious diseases, as if um, as if they affect individual people, and as if um, as if they're uncertain, and as if you know there's always possibility to change your mind or find new and additional evidence. So that mixture of integrity and humility is something that I admire in the people who work here all the time. Natalie,
0: you you have many many important roles at SIDRAP. And you also have some of those roles within the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project. And some of those include identifying, researching all the n- numerous sources of content and communication of your research. And then you also are communicating that via social media, and our weekly newsletter. So not sure if our listeners were aware of this or not, but you're really responsible for all of that outreach and external communication via the Twitter account as well as the weekly newsletter for SIDRAP Antimicrobial Stewardship Project. And I've heard many people wonder, with all the information that's out there, how do you do it? How do you filter through all of that content? They're very curious about your repro- approach, about how you go about finding that information that's credible, that's timely, that you are then able to bring awareness to through the newsletter, through social media, through the website resource pages. So can you tell us a little bit about your approach to this knowledge gathering, which is a, a term we've talked about before?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I um, So I think if you had asked me this question a year ago, I probably would have just shrugged and been like, I don't know, um, and kind of kept it a mystery. Um, and it's kind of always been a mystery to me as well. And um, I think in just within the past four years of this project, a lot of us have really been thinking about um, what this project is. And um, because it doesn't look like other Antimicrobial stewardship projects out there, even the ones that are based at academic institutions. And so, thinking a lot about how I approach knowledge gathering and how I go about that has helped me think about what's unique and what's purposeful about this project. And I think it's this idea of being a project that bears witness and being a project that really places a lot of importance on knowledge gathering and on um, sharing that knowledge in a way that um, can help other people interpret it or that can kind of start to tell a story with how that knowledge proceeds throughout time. And my process, i I'm not sure how to describe it, actually. I've always been a researcher at heart, um, you know, to the point of actually lying to my parents as a child and telling them that I had homework to, copy out an entry in the encyclopedia every night um, when that was nowhere near the truth. Um, And so there's, I'm always scanning the environment and I'm always looking for information, um, whether that's on Twitter and trying to, you know, look at some of these conversations, these very deep conversations that are happening between our researchers and doctors and clinical pharmacists and veterinarians on Twitter. Um, and really just kind of trying to immerse myself in some of those conversations. Um, And in doing that, I got really intrigued um, in this space, um, uh, the social media space, because I was seeing um, people talk about research and people asking these questions and people showing the utmost integrity when it comes to caring for patients and really doing their work in the most informed way. But I also got the chance to see um, clinicians live tweeting The Bachelor, and I learned a lot about uh, soccer in Saudi Arabia, and I got to see these people living really full lives Um, and, you know, just being goofy, but also being incredibly caring and compassionate in this space. And I think just being immersed in that made me want to kind of collect this information and um, look at the information as really contributing to a bigger story. So, um, you mentioned, you said the word collecting, and, um, I don't know that I really collect things other, maybe I collect things, but I think I'm always in this process of carrying things. And I think about that a lot, a lot, like what it means to be, um, involved so deeply in epidemiology and in sort of always scanning the environment for information and um, really never accepting that there's an end to that information. And um, I think that, that there's something in that where you kind of start to carry that data in your body or you start looking at Um, you start being able to see conversations between disparate entities or between different people who may never have had contact with each other. And that's, that's the really exciting part for me. Um, Yeah, I think just being able to have those conversations kind of form themselves through the research and through the information gathering is, um, it's just really exciting. And that's kind of what what I really hope to do um, with a lot of, a lot of the communications aspect of this project.
0: Yeah, the, the, the mission or the goal of the project is of course, in CIDREP itself is to provide current, accurate, um, timely, authoritative content to an online community and then create the, the, the knowledge sharing. And I think that that's, it's a very tall task to do and you do it so well. I, I also wanted to talk about the importance of the communication that's starting to happen with scientists and get your opinion on this. The, it's not only the communication, but it's the research that they're sharing through online mechanisms such as social media, or other informative manners. Um, one of those that you do every week for the SIDRAP Antimicrobial Stewardship Project is the newsletter that's very digestible. Um, you, you spend a lot of time on that every week, putting that information together. Um, and, and I want you to talk about a couple of things, just how you feel that's changing, where scientists are communicating more, with each other and with the public via these platforms, talk a little about, about this newsletter and what you hope to achieve with this. And if you if you can also, um, you know, how, how people can avoid misinformation as well that's out there. Um, so why don't we just talk about the first uh, piece of this, which is scientists communicating more And having more of a voice through the different platforms online.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think sometimes it's, um, there's this, uh, there's this notion that scientists don't communicate well, or that they need to be taught how to communicate. And I think those ideas and those um, ways of, of helping people share their research more broadly can be really great and helpful. But I also think that um, there are a number of things in play when scientists choose to communicate their work. There's the risk of backlash or the risk of threats at at the more extreme side of things. There, um, There are all of these implicit structural hierarchies that might make it hard for someone to communicate what they're doing or take credit for what they're doing. Um, And I think social media has started to break some of that down. Um, But I also think that sometimes it's not always clear for scientists where they have a space to actually share their work and who is listening and how that work is going to be taken out into the world and interpreted. So I think there's a huge, I don't think it's necessarily that scientists have, um, are bad communicators. I think it's that there are all of these issues um, that they face when making the decision to share what they've been doing. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think just as I mentioned before, the conversations happening on social media and in journal clubs and um, in these spaces where scientists are kind of sharing their work more broadly. And I think in the case of CIDRAP and CIDRAP ASP, where um so much of the project is journalism focused. Um, it really gives people the chance to talk a little bit more about their work and then also see how it fits in to a bigger story um, or maybe has implications that they hadn't considered or implications that they'd really wanted to talk more about. Um, yeah, so I think, I think it's really important for scientists to communicate their work Um, and I think sometimes communication, especially when you've been collecting all of this information, um, in your head or in your experience, it's a really natural thing to want to share that or to want to synthesize that in, in a different kind of space. But sometimes the platforms aren't necessarily there or welcome for you to do that. And I think that's changing and especially now, um, during the pandemic that has broken down a lot of hierarchies or has changed them in some way, um, that that's kind of, some of those spaces are, well, some they're closing down in some way, but they're also opening up in other ways.
0: Let's, and let's move to a little bit to talk about this, the newsletter. So in, as I mentioned, you have many roles and one of them is the weekly newsletter for the Sidrup Antimicrobial Stewardship Project just tell the listeners if they're not aware uh, uh, of the newsletter or if they haven't signed up for it yet, what the purpose is, what what you're trying to achieve when you sit down to create that next newsletter for the week.
1: Sure. So uh, we started sending out a newsletter, maybe four months after the project launched. And to be honest, the newsletter was, um, Kind of came out of a selfish place, maybe, where I was seeing all of this information, all of these, you know, conversations that were happening between people and organizations that maybe didn't realize they were talking to each other or contributing something to this big conversation. And I just needed a place to get it out of my head, to be honest. Um, and so. Uh, The newsletter that we send out every week, it's a collection of what's in my head, um, but it's a collection of research summaries, um, new guidance, new projects, uh, educational initiatives, opportunities for funding or um, occasionally for job positions and antimicrobial stewardship. Um, It's just a plethora of information, and it's all the information that I see every week and that I want to share with people. And it's also a place where um, we try to keep up a little more with what's being published in the literature, particularly in um, those types of studies that might not be right for a SIDRAP news story or a new scan, but have something interesting to contribute to the conversation. And so I try to bring together a pretty wide diversity of voices and um, people coming at this topic of antimicrobial resistance and stewardship from different places. And um, I've been trying to highlight more voices from low and middle income countries and um, voices that might have something, a different perspective to bring to the stewardship conversation or might have an argument to pick with it, because I think that's really important as well. Um, Yeah, so it goes out every Thursday. You can sign up on the website um, we're revising some of the formatting right now, but it's, uh, it's basically just a big list right now of information. And then, uh, you can find out more about what we at cetera ASP are doing in that newsletter as well, because we all always have, uh, different, different opportunities and events and interesting things happening here.
0: Yeah, it's definitely such a good tool to keep people up to date that are very busy and 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 appreciate that it's a, a col- it's collection. Not I should say it's not a collection, but as you mentioned, but it it's where you can aggregate all that information that you carry and have have, have picked up over the past week. I, I want to move to now um, some of the work you've done um, during and because of the COVID pandemic that is occurring. Um, and talk a little bit about the the COVID nineteen and antimicrobial stewardship resource that you've created on uh, as part of the the project. Talk a little bit about why you decided to create this research tool, and um, then we can move on to how that information has been evolving over the past six months.
1: Sure. So um, in early March, I created a page. On the CEREP ASP website, that uh, brings together different um, different things that address COVID nineteen and antimicrobial stewardship, and um, so I have to take a look at it right now because it's gotten faster. Um, but it it uh, brings together guidance, uh, international guidance, um, for different clinical settings, uh, government policy. Uh, a wealth of perspective pieces because there have been so many perspectives on how the COVID nineteen pandemic will or will not affect antimicrobial resistance and how or what role antimicrobial stewardship can play in that space. Um, uh, it's a lot of published literature and there's you know I have never seen such a. Uh, vibrant conversation about what gets published in the literature, how that gets changed, corrected, how it moves forward um, as right now. And so we try to collect uh, published literature so you can kind of see what's been happening in that space since uh, since March of this year. And uh, we also collect um, a number of other resource hubs. So people who are collecting information in this space, and that's been that's been really cool to see that people have identified a need to collect information related to the intersection of these topics So it's a really um, it's it's a really long vast page. Um, it didn't start that way I kind of thought it would stay uh, stay a little bit uh, more concise in March but um, there's been so much information coming out I think I add to it, I've been adding to it at least once a day since March. And so this information and this perspective really just kind of keeps coming. Yeah, I,
0: I wondered if you could expand upon that since you've been uh, right in the, in the heart of it and watching, as you say, the story evolve over time for tracking of antimicrobial resistance during the COVID pandemic. At first there was no very sparse literature published about it and then how that story is continued to evolve. What, what are some of the, can you speak to that and some of the the current trending topics in that space?
1: Yeah. So um, in early March, uh, what was really out there, there were a couple of studies um, coming out of China and Italy and I just, I just read them, I think in early July, I just reread these studies and it was really interesting to look at them because um, at that point and in, in these publications, uh, the virus and the disease didn't even have its name by which we know it at this point. And so um, it was just really fascinating to look at these, but there was, there was a small amount of information there was also a large amount of perspective and commentary on uh, antibiotic treatment, um, antibiotic resistance, um, the need for research and development into new antibiotics. So this um, these pieces of perspective and commentary were moving so quickly, and there were so many voices in this arena, but the data, just what there was, there were no data um, and it was it was a really difficult and interesting space to be in because there were so many voices trying to make meaning out of antimicrobial stewardship and AMR during COVID nineteen, um, but there wasn't really anything being published at that point. We didn't have anything super robust, so it's always a little unsettling to me when I start to see commentary and perspective move faster. Than evidence, which of course it always does, um, so it shouldn't be too unsettling. Um, now I think that we have more published literature, um, more experiences from clinicians. Um, we're starting to see that empirical antibiotic use is probably quite high in comparison to co-infection, at least on admission. Um, the data have been uh, pretty variable when it comes to uh, superinfection, infection, um, sort of probably related to the duration of the hospital or the intensive care unit stay, um, where you start to see um, a higher rate of superinfection at those points. Um, what's been really interesting to me is that there's also been a number of experiences published um, and guidance published by clinicians who are aware of this particular gap, um, cautious about interpreting it at the local level. Um, and based on what they're seeing in individual patients, but um, really looking at ways to integrate COVID-19 response into antimicrobial stewardship efforts and the investment that they've made in building up a structure to do stewardship and do to do um, the optimal infectious diseases care um, and looking at how that can be applied here. So there's been a lot of really interesting research on um, implementing uh, COVID-19 stewardship and care into some of these structures like uh, prospective audit and feedback or into um, into the electronic medical record and clinical decision support systems. Um, there have been really interesting things about using the antimicrobial stewardship team to really handle remdesivir allocations and um, and so, so some of these experiences coming out, um, a lot of that is U.S.-based. Um, and there are more studies right now, I think, coming out of Europe specifically. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been uh, fascinating to see clinical medicine um, and pharmacy kind of respond to, uh, to some of these new data and then be able to take activities that they were already doing before and adapt them to the questions raised um, by what's known right now, um, I think other other trends that I've seen or things that are um, seem to be interesting to people right now are um, looking at uh, what's happening with other diseases like tuberculosis, HIV, malaria, polio, when all attention is focused on this particular disease, and looking at um, The issue of substandard medications or of access to medications in places where rates of TB, HIV, malaria, these things are quite high. And um, so people making sure that while we are so focused on reducing transmission of COVID-19, that we aren't forgetting that there are these other diseases that cause tremendous suffering um, in, you know, in inequitable ways and in... um, in structures that might not have the laboratory capacity uh, to diagnose them quickly or to pivot as quickly when an emergency happens. Um, And then the one other trend that I've been seeing lately is a trend toward really looking at hospital wastewater as a place to do surveillance of AMR when, um, as it relates to COVID-19. And so looking at some of these structures that are already in place in many many areas to look um, or to identify and do surveillance for ESBLs in hospital wastewater and how that might relate to empirical treatment of COVID-19, particularly in critical care. Um, So that's been been a big area of interest, I think, and something where people can, uh, can start to use some of these structures that are already in place or are beginning to sort of be built. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen anything related to AMR, um, as it relates to outpatient prescribing during COVID-19. And I think that would be, that's definitely, um, something not to forget about, I would say.
0: And Natalie, where can, where can people find, um, maybe if you can just describe where they can find all this information within the CIDRAP website? Um, And I I also assume that you add some of this content to the weekly newsletter as well. So they can can click right into the content that you're highlighting into the newsletter to the website or whatever the original
1: sources. Yeah, I um, so I've been adding all of the COVID-19 and AMR information into the newsletter every week. So if that's something that's easier for people to just get that to their inbox every Thursday. They can sign up on the website. Um, Otherwise, the website is all freely accessible. Um, It is quite vast, as I mentioned. Um, So if you go to the uh, the sidrap.umn.edu slash ASP website, um, there's a a section for COVID-19 and AMS in the right-hand menu bar, and that has all of the information um you can also, um any of the listeners can also feel free to tweet at me on the SIDRAP uh, ASP Twitter account. Um I'm on there a lot and I'm always happy to answer questions or take suggestions, and that's um at sidrap underscore ASP on Twitter. Excellent.
0: Yes, it's good for people to realize that that when they engage by Twitter with our project. At Sidrap ASP, that they're able to engage with you at the
1: same time.
0: Tell us a little bit more about your involvement in the pandemic artist lab.
1: Yeah, so um, the pandemic artist lab was a lab hosted. Well, it's a it was an experimental space um, online hosted the summer by Cassini House and Tulane University Special Collections. And it was part of their art meets history initiative, and so it was all about, um, as uh, Rick Kadour, who heads Cassini House, put it, um, taking a problem that you're experiencing in the present uh, by the hand and walking it back through history to find out what became linked at what time and what is the genesis of this problem, and then how you can walk back into the present and. make art and uh, make art that speaks to that and maybe helps to carry what you would like to see into the future. And it was premised on the fact that as a pandemic or an epidemic moves through society, it reveals things. So it reveals uh, all of these problems that maybe uh, different groups hadn't thought about and other groups had recognized were there and were problems. it creates the space of listening to um, all of these things that might be connected with infectious disease that maybe people hadn't realized before. But um, the goal for the Pandemic Artist Lab was to um, really learn as much as possible about how archival research can speak to a present day experience and how it can kind of drive your knowledge um, about how an experience um, can give you the information you need to make changes to things that are broken or things that are breaking because of that infectious disease experience. And so we use the Tulane University Digital Collections, uh, which are uh, which is a digital archive of uh, historical materials, mostly related to the history of New Orleans, which um, has a rich and incredibly complex history history, um, not only with epidemics, but also with racism, with um, different people uh, coming into this port and being a port city and all of the things that that means. Um, so just incredibly uh, rich uh, historical um, social disease history. Um, and so it was. To, the point of the lab was to use this archive to develop a project. Um, And so my project was, of course, related to all of these things that I'd been thinking about with epidemiology. And I've always been interested in um, this history of public health and with public health interventions because it has this dual history of heroism where it's saving many people's lives, but then also this history of atrocity where it has also done some really terrible things or been responsible for those things. And I'm really fascinated by that, that two-sided history. And so my project has, um, the premise of my project is to use art to kind of communicate this, um, this history of both heroism and atrocity, what you take from that, what you learn from that, and then how you carry that into the future to make sure that you're stripping the future of harm, um. By t- by taking all of that knowledge with you, um, and choosing what to carry. So I'm still really thinking through a lot of it. It was an intense experience, and I learned so much from that lab both um, both about how to use archives to address a present day problem and to bring different areas together. Um, but also also just really made me think a lot about my own relationship to public health and um, and how I kind of approach my career and the research side of that going forward. Thank you, Natalie, for sharing your story about this other
0: interest and passion of yours. To close our conversation, I wonder if there's anything you'd like to share with the listeners that we haven't discussed.
1: Um, I think the only thing I would really share is that so many insights from this project um, about what this project is, what its purpose is, what my purpose is, um, have been garnered from uh, doing uh, guest lectures or helping to teach classes at the University of Minnesota. And I think probably most people at SIDRAP would agree that that's one of the favorite parts of their job. And, um, one of the things that's really struck me about interacting with students who have different levels of interest in epidemiology is that so many of the students there are entirely lacking in cynicism. They have this amazing hope for the future even in the midst of an emergency. And when they look at epidemiology and infectious disease and emergency um They have hope for the future, but they also see themselves as playing a role in the future and they imagine themselves in the future making it better. And they do that by looking at all of the problems in public health, public health's very complicated history, um, looking at all of these things that are going on now and asking, what are the parts of this that I can carry with me into the future to make it better? And it's something that I think about all the time, and it's one of the best parts of my job, and it's what keeps me away from cynicism and um, feeling that what I do doesn't make a difference, because I think that seeing yourself in the future, imagining what you want to carry, especially during a time of crisis, is one of the most incredible, important, and helpful things. So that's that's my takeaway today and every day. We appreciate your time today and all that you do for the project
0: and all the information that you provide for our
1: global online community. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Marnie.
0: This is Dr. Marnie Peterson and you've been listening to Stewardship Spotlight a podcast produced by the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project Team at the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. Our podcast editor is Maya Peters. For more news and information on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, check out our website at sidrap.umn.edu. You can also find us on Twitter at sidrap underscore asp.